everyone. Happy 2021. Welcome back to Resilient Together by Collaborative Community Resilience. My name is Yasmin and today I'm here with Ilyas, my colleague at Urbanist Malaysia. Hi Ilyas. Hi Yasmin. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good as well. (laughs) (laughs) So Ilyas, I want to ask, do you cycle? I did, but that was like 15 years ago. It's it's, it's been a while, yeah. How about you? Um, well, for me, I've been trying to, um, especially with slightly less cars on the road. But interestingly, it's been really cool to see all these new modes of traveling in the city, slightly more cyclists. Um, I even saw a guy on an electric skateboard the other day. Wow, that's, that's cool. But it doesn't sound safe. I think twice about going around that. Yeah, you're right. Well, I guess that's why we're here today. We'll be exploring the topic of sustainable urban mobility for all. And how do we make that work? And what does that really mean in our context? And how do we make moving around our city safer, more comfortable, and essentially more sustainable for everyone? Mm, Yes, Asmin. I think this is the best time we talk about this. When we talk about urban mobility, we can't avoid talking about public transport, right? Yeah. We saw public transport ridership has dropped to just 5% during MCO last year. And then it goes up again in July, but dropped back when cases went up. Yeah, definitely it's impacting human behaviour, this virus. Um, but also car ownership went up quite a bit last year. Yeah, so I think we really need to push for sustainable mobility now. And that's why in this episode, we will be speaking to two guests, Hafiz and Johan, who are part of the movement to make it happen. Hi Hafiz, hi, welcome to Resilient Together. Really great to have you on the show. Hafiz is uh, part of Malaysia Masra Basikal, a new association. Um, so Hafiz, could you tell us more about, about your association? Hi Urbanize, hi Yasmin. Uh, the full name is Persatuan Malaysia Masra Basikal. And we were registered sometime in July or June 2020. Uh, it started with a dialogue back in, I think, just a few days before uh, last year's MCO. We were both talking about the problems and the concerns on the road for cyclists. So um, that conversation stopped there. And uh, once MCO started, the number of cyclists on the road rise. And then um, Akmal, myself, and the now president, Johan, then gathered and then said that, okay, we need to gather our voices because apparently there is a gap in terms of representation among cyclists in Malaysia. So there is currently a group, an association representing cyclists in terms of athletes or sport cyclists, but there's no voice for a universal cyclist kind of group. So that is the main reason why MMB was established. What do you advocate for? What do you represent as this universal cyclist group? What do we advocate for? Collectively, as an association, we're looking at, you know, the industrial workers who take their bikes to their factories on a daily basis, the uncles and aunties who have been riding their trusted bikes for uh, more than one decade. There are four types of cyclists in Malaysia. One is recreational or leisure cyclists. Another one is sports cyclists. Under the sport arm, you have uh, mountain bikers and all these performance types of cyclists. The third one is touring or solo riders. The fourth one, okay, I can't remember what's the fourth one. Oh yeah, sorry, utility, utility bikers. Yeah, so this 
These guys uh, do cargo and they, they also they write to work. They actually, it, it's a borderline with the daily commuters. But generally in Malaysia, the first group, which is the leisure group, the highest in terms of population. Okay, interesting. I mean, so yeah, you guys have done a couple of polls, you know, through your social media and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And you've seen some trends, some change in trends. Uh, yeah, anything you can share on that? Yeah, that was the kind of like first milestone for the association. We started our Facebook page and then we started a poll. Uh, in that poll, we've included four categories and also in Twitter. Uh, just vote which category of cyclists are you. And what we've noticed uh, was that the highest number of cyclists is the recreational cyclists, followed by uh, the sports or performance cyclists. But I mean, I think we, we can all see that from MCO, there's an influx of people who bought like road bikes. Majority of the, the people who take up this hobby were more interested to get road bikes. So this was actually an, started from an internal discussion within our group. And then we wanted to somewhat just like, you know, test the water or um, prove this, this theory. And then um, the answer is, well, a recreational still re- remain the first, but the number of road bikes come second. To get an uh, understanding of what cyclists uh, want, you should ask the right person now, which is uh, cyclist yeah. yourself. So, what are the things that cyclists want in the city? So, my answer would not is on my personal opinion alone. Lah. It's also based on our observation as a group. So, what, what do cyclists generally want would be safety on the road. That is the main important thing. Safety because our roads are highways oriented. If we were to move away from the city, we go back to the kampongs, to the villages in Malaysia, it's the best place to cycle. But if you go into the city, all of these highways are rapidly being built. Constructions here and there, left and right. And then, you know, the risk are basically everywhere and it's very high. It's not safe, actually. And then the, the, the second one on safety as well is better quality of roads. Uh, you know, we've known a very recent issue which involved our minister, Kairi Jamaluddin, uh, on the patchy roads and the quality of roads in Malaysia. Um, and then it has been addressed by JKR. But it is not a, a recent issue. It has been there for more than two, three decades, I think. And um, cyclists have raised their voice in terms of uh, the quality of roads. And also, I think, uh, motorcyclists as well. But still, it, it is it has to be improved in a larger sense. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned about safety. Again. How can we become a more Muslim bicycle society in Malaysia? So, the first thing is to make it Muslim or more bike-friendly is to educate. We understand that there are, I mean, especially at this time where there are so many new cyclists, beginners, who are entering the roads, who are using their bikes on the roads, but they don't they do not know um, first which roads can be used and cannot be used. And I personally learned this the hard way myself. And I, you know, when you want to take your bike from point A to point B, let's say you want to go to a cafe, you do not know that okay, actually this road will interject or will be combined with a few, maybe two highways. Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's a few danger points that you have to be aware of. So I think education about the techniques in cycling and especially commuting, because 
you're, deal, you're dealing with cyclists in the city. So at, in, in the education, it can be a form of workshop or uh, a policy book or a manual, like a very simple manual in PDF or images that can be shared in uh, WhatsApp, you know, yeah. easily to cycling groups, yeah. Uh, this is within the community itself. How about uh, information to other uh, road users? Other road users, I think still within the lines of safety, but more on to how do you give way or make way to cyclists? And more importantly, uh, respecting other road users, be it, you know, the becha, the car trucks, the cyclists, the cargo cyclists and all that. Because it, it is almost an inevitable, you cannot avoid that the fact that there are so many cyclists on the road now mm -hmm. uh, and then more and more will come in the future which is a good thing uh, and it's a good problem but cars also in Malaysia the drivers used to be driving on a road that are only populated by cars but right now you need to know that okay there will be bicycles on your left or on your right the other point that I want to highlight is defensive cycling and defensive driving it's a it's a universal approach like defensive Driving or cycling is a universal approach that I think both sides of the road users should be aware of, so that you know we look up, we look after each other better. I think what you said earlier about our roads being highway oriented, I definitely feel that as a cyclist, you know, I want to complete the journey, but I I'm not willing to cycle on the sprint highway. And why is it that these highways cut our accessibility as well? And so I think. In addressing that, there has to be a discussion on because highways are essentially walls, right? They, they're literally walls for cyclists where either you carry your bike over a pedestrian crossing, which are not everywhere. So you have to, you know, you have to really be fearless and you have to be strong in order to be a cyclist. We had a question about uh, your wish list for Malaysia Mr. Bascal <laughs> City and, and what are the biggest obstacles of achieving that? Wish list is, we, we I mean, as, a, as an association, we just have a very a grand vision of making Malaysia a safe and a safe place to cycle. Obstacles to achieve that uh, would be that's a quite quite of a long list to to mention. But uh, the some of the important ones are like I say, mindset of the people. This has to be changed, uh, and I think we can bring in examples from Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Amsterdam to showcase to Malaysia on how do the people over there do it because their circumstances is not so much different than, than ours actually. Uh, and it's actually, and they have overcome a few obstacles in terms of like governmental policies, dealing with local authorities to make it happen. Uh, and usually it's the push from the, the large groups of cyclists. So volume speaks. So we need to have more and more cyclists to speak up to show their presence on the road, uh, you know, ethically. And then, um, you know, the government will will notice us and give more space. Uh, obst another obstacle would be, uh, I wouldn't say obstacles, but I would like to, um, you know, find it as an opportunity to partner with local authorities, um, i.e., you know, we have PDRM, the PBTs in Malaysia, JKR, to participate and cooperate uh, with cyclists. Uh, but I think this has to be tactfully done or executed because if you speak to only one group of cyclists, they will have different demands. 
you know, right. they will want, they will demand for a, a designated, segregated bike highway in, you know, next to Federal Highway, which is like quite crazy. Uh, Cycle <laughs> Yeah, or super highway. So, you know, we, we believe in moderate ways to, to solve this problem. That's why if you notice in my answers earlier, I don't just say, you know, policy change. Because policy change is not within our control. As, you know, as a voice for a, the psych, universal cyclists, I think it, we have the power and, and strength to do, to make the change. So, mindset, um, the way we cycle, Educating others, I think this is this is all within our reach, and it should be propagated to everyone. But talking about uh, shift of mindset, and uh, yeah, and then recently there's a lot of backlash from the community, from the netizen. That was the reason, yeah. Yeah. Uh, backlash. I think if I can just address the one of the biggest issue is perspectives and and misconceptions about cyclists. So, uh, for Malaysia's context, and I think this this is something that we can observe from the Facebook groups in Malaysia and all that. The misconceptions about owning bicycles is that bicycles are expensive. And, you know, if a person wants to buy a bike and you ask your friend, hey, how much is, is this bike? And then you go on Facebook marketplace or you go to bike shops. Most of the bikes who, uh, most of the bikes which are being marketed are expensive road bikes. Yeah, so this is the, the general misconception. Uh. And then the other one is there's no clear set of rules or regulation imposed on two cyclists. So because of there's no rules, like mm. we've touched before, it's a, it's a very new thing. Um, seeing so many cyclists on the road, so the road users are like, what what's going on? You know, how do I deal with this? You know, it's obstructing my road. I can't drive safely. I have to look after these cyclists. And the cyclists from the cyclist side, they don't know how to deal with the other road users. So I think these are the two main factors of the backlash. I really like your um, kind of holistic take on it. You know, not so much rattling too many um, things, you know, just taking a very mystery approach to making um, cycling work for our cities. And I think what you brought up about uh, the PBTs, the local authorities working with different cities is really important because at the end of the day, they do have the allocation in, in creating bike lanes and improving roads that's under their jurisdiction. Um, I've also noticed, uh, I'm not sure if this is the case, but but majority of cyclists are, are men in the city. Um, so I wanted to address the idea of um, acceptability, you know, so making cycling. I know the, the first thing you mentioned is safety and, you know, definitely that is an issue. And, and for, for women cyclists, it would be a different experience altogether cycling compared to men. Um, so other things like that that you address in your association? Um... We welcome anyone and it's supposed to gather a lot more volume, um, i.e. population of cyclists in our association right now. And you guys are welcome to join, of course. We want to encourage more and more people, uh, actually non, I'm, I'm particularly uh, interested in engaging non-cyclists to have a dialogue with uh, us in terms of you know, the safety of the road, because currently there's a lot of dialogues among cyclists themselves and the problem deals with the other road users as well, but there's no bridge linking to these two parties. So we've been trying to, to bridge that gap. We want to speak to other non-cyclists, people who are interested to know, people who are too scared to ride, that kind of thing, just having a, a universal voice. 
and I think like you know just touching on this podcast and you know leveraging on potential partnership with you guys I think it's, it's quite positive and I think there should be more of this lah because town planning and community centric initiatives are very very much needed in uh, Malaysia and is needed first you know how do we unlock this car dependent society that we're in what's the first thing if you couldn't leave us with a message where do we start I think it has to be concurrent rather than if for example repair the or prepare a a solid bike infra in KL if you have a solid bike infrastructures in KL but you do not have any cyclists participating in your campaigns it doesn't make any sense or doesn't serve any point so i think the first thing to be addressed is to educate the masses on why the why behind cycling yeah. so it is safe it is healthy it saves money contributes to carbon emission less capex for the government to build bigger roads and more roads secondly it's then educating them about the how be- behind the cycling so how to ride safe where to ride when what time to ride and what kind of bike can be used so i think this is the two things that should be uh, happening uh, basically to educate the society to create a bicycle revolution here in malaysia because we've already see we are we already seeing the numbers increasing in terms of cyclists on the road but it's actually quite worrying because we are seeing more and more uh, accidents or uh you know bad things happening on the road involving cyclists you know the government can also uh introduce policies for road users you know to regulate the bicycle market as well to make bicycles more accessible and more affordable to people yeah because because we have seen this in you know countries like beijing taiwan they have made it possible to make their country or their city uh more a safer place to cycle definitely yeah i mean we're even seeing it in jakarta which is just our neighbor yeah taking oh God, some, some yeah some crazy steps which you would never think that their level of congestion and stuff but you know if they can do it you know we really should should be doing it i, I love the idea of of involving non cyclists as well cuz you know otherwise we're just preaching to the converted I think just amongst our team as well who recorded this podcast not all of us are cyclists so we get that really balanced viewpoint and to make it a reality you have to include everyone so are you optimistic that uh, cycling will become our culture I am optimistic that cycling will become a Malaysian culture because cycling is is not a new thing in Malaysia pre world war 1 you know 1900s to 1920s 1970s we have in 1980s we have one of the biggest like bicycle factory in in the region actually uh, we oh. produce and manufacture rally bikes the british brand so i think it's 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 all about relieving that trend back to malaysia and what the the biggest difference that we have right now and what we didn't have back in the 70s was we don't have big roads right and the number of trucks and cars on the road I'm not I'm not necessarily, you know, finger pointing at any uh, particular road user here, but you know, the idea of of cycling is not new to Malaysia. So it has been here back then. It's very much possible to happen again, and I'm very optimistic that it can happen again with the right kind of mindset, with the right environment, and it's, you know, it's easy to to go from point A to point B. I'm very very optimistic uh, that Malaysia can definitely be a cycling 
friendly nation in the future, near future actually. So we've heard a bit from the collective voice of cyclists that it's so important to break down the why of cycling in order to create change. And that it's not just a trend, but there's a bigger need for more diverse modes of mobility. Yeah, we need to highlight the importance of educating people, especially on how to cycle safely and also to share our roads. Definitely. But we also want to know more about the city's approach to adopting micromobility. I guess the how is equally important. So we've called in Johan to find out more. Okay, so our next guest is Johan Semi. He is currently the project lead for sustainable urban mobility innovation at Urban Disruption. Hi Johan, thanks for being with us today. Hi, good morning. We go to the, to the first question. How do you think our cities are responding or reacting to the micromobility, both shared and personal use? And what other direction are we heading? That's a very interesting question. Um, micromobility, okay, let's let's break it down. Okay, what's micromobility? Okay. Micromobility is not some, it's not something new in, in, in this part of the world, I would say. What has happened over the last couple of years or the last five years is that we're seeing it being disrupted. So we have a technology element added to it. So today, uh, we do not need to go to the nearest uh, trishaw. If you still find any in KL or in Malaysia, it has come to the stage whereby you use the app on your phone, you know, and uh, you just select where's your destination, where you want to go, get to the closest device, hop onto, hop onto it, and then uh, there you go, you can travel. We are seeing that... Um, more people are using micromobility devices. Uh, these devices is, are in the form of uh, electric scooter. Some even use these uh, unicycles, uh, electric unicycles. I don't know, not sure you have seen those around. Yeah, I saw that the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also cycling as well, you know, bicycles, yeah. So I think, well, looking at Malaysia alone, uh, cities like in Penang, you know, uh, KL, Shalam, you know, uh, they are very responsive uh, to, to this new technology. And they want to bring in uh, micromobility as one of the initiatives, a part of the sustainable initiative, and also uh, to introduce it as a low-carbon mode of transportation in the cities. So, yes, I would say that we are heading towards the right direction here. So what you're saying is cities are open to the idea of it, but it's, it's not just cities, it's also communities that we need to consider. Yes. I, it, right. it takes both sides to, to tango, right? It's just not one side. I, I think right at the, at the moment, of course, there's a struggle. Okay, there's a struggle within the city themselves and with the authorities, mm. right? Uh, we have seen in the news, of, you know, the, the traffic police from KL, you know. Um, and then there's a lot of grey areas, you know. Uh, I would say grey areas. Uh, people are not, you know, not very clear which... What road is an expressway? What road is this? It's a highway, you know. Which road can right. I cycle and so on and so forth? So there has to be a lot of clear communication with the cycling community or with the general public as a whole. So these are the things that we need to address, actually. Yeah, Yeah, I think definitely from COVID, we're seeing that um, the road is such a resource. You know, we've, we've kind of let cars and trucks take control, but it's actually not just for them. It's connecting you know, everyday people. Um, it's it's our space. It's, you know, how do we bring back the idea of shared space is changing the mindset as well that the roads are not just for cars. It's for other users. It's for pedestrians as well. I mean, there should be diversity in how we get around. Uh, but just going back to shared micromobility, which is um, something that, you know, you've been involved in uh, for a while as well. 
uh, and you've seen in Penang, uh, I think Penang saw uh, any wheel for a couple of months uh, in, in some parts of the island. So I just wanted to get your take. Is shared micromobility a good idea for our cities and, and how do we make it work? Yeah, shared mobility, shared micromobility, I think that's a great idea. Okay, that's how cities get people to change the habit the habit of uh, driving, the habit of having our own transportation to actually use an alternative mode of transport. So uh, I think a, a few points that I, when we're talking about, you know, how a city reacting to, to micromobility and all, and I like to bring up why city loves micromobility, okay? It's because one, we are, you have to understand 50% of our trips, vehicle made by vehicles are less than three kilometers, all right? So imagine every time yeah. you go out, right, you are driving, you're using like, you know, you're driving less than three kilometers and, and you're actually using a car and single occupant vehicle, right? Yeah, and everyone is doing that, right? Yeah, exactly. So by taking people off the vehicles and using a micromobility device, uh, for, in, this, in this matter, uh, a shared device, okay, it creates an option for people, for users, right? And secondly, by taking a number of vehicles, people out of the vehicles, it reduces the number of vehicles on the road. So naturally, it reduces traffic congestion. And also, it helps to reduce the cost of maintenance of the roads, right? Imagine the heavily usage, heavy utilized roads, you know, the number of potholes that we find today on our roads is because of the number of vehicles that we have on the roads, okay? By reducing that, they actually, you know, save a lot more money and they can use this money, you know, to build better infrastructure for cycling. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. And of course, another matter is that it addresses the first mile, last mile connectivity, okay? The connectivity to public transportation nodes, Especially city in KL, whereby, you know, it takes you a pretty long distance to travel from one place to another, right? So we can rely on public transportation. Improving public transportation is one thing, uh, but services is one thing. But more importantly is that we allow people to have access to those trans public transportation nodes, and that is through shared services. Mm -hmm. And of course, most importantly is that it reduces the carbon footprint of the city itself. So that's why cities love them, yeah. So uh, in our sense, what we're trying to do uh, in urban is, is that we are trying to come up with a set of rules and set of spec specifications, you know, to help the cities to actually control this. Uh, we are we are latecomers, so that's a good thing because latecomers, right? They attend, they have many lessons to learn. You know, they've seen how the other cities reacted. So we now we have the opportunity to proact. So which is why that if you look at our approach in our cities in the cities is that it's quite systematic you know so we look at the city we look at the locations we look at the routes we look at the areas that is potentially be able that we can uh, implement a pilot program right and from there we would actually work with the city councils very closely to actually map out the the routes you know map up the facilities the parking areas you know so that, you know, we do not have the headache of too many bicycles or too many scooters and it's everywhere. Um, the other thing is also what we are doing is that uh, we are looking into the areas, the parking stations, where it is accessible for the users and at the same time it's convenient. So accessibility and convenience is one of the key criteria okay, for users to actually... Uh, utilize the devices uh, more frequently, right? 
So it's a very systematic approach that we're doing as compared to what it was before. So these are all the lessons that we have learned. I think the good point is that uh, everyone is working together. This this is how we create uh, an ecosystem for for the city itself. And maybe you want to touch about how these micro-mobility companies uh, and operators, how they can build a better relationship with, uh, with the cities and its people. That's, that's a very good one. Again, when we look back and what, what has happened before, in fact, let's look before that, even before that, and how Uber and Grab came into the market. We're talking about disruption here. Having myself been in a startup before, we always had this uh, <laughs> motto, okay? It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Um, and that's how they started. Um, why we do that is as a new technology, okay? And when we disrupt a market, there's no regulation, there's no rules, there's no policies in place, okay? So we always, there's always this gray area uh, gaining a lot of popularity now. So... Coming back to how we are operating right now or how the operators are operating today, um, they are completely different from what the, the earlier pioneers were. So today they have, in each of these startups, you find that they have a government relationships officer or manager. They are much better regulated today, I would say, as compared to before. Right. So you wouldn't see any rogue <laughs> uh, operators start to operate in certain areas or so without even the consent from the government agency or even with the city government. So that's pretty good. And of course, with the cities, with the operators, yes, users are most important. They spend a lot of money and, uh, and resources you know, on conducting workshops, creating public awareness and marketing as well, you know, just to get people to be on board with that, to use their, their devices. But I think that they have to go further than that because in markets, new markets like in Malaysia, right, Southeast Asia for that matter, with the exception of Singapore, we are fairly new to this micromobility. So we need a lot of public education as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's also the idea of supporting local industries, local economies as well, you know, besides the fact of uh, relying on, um, you know, international or external companies, how do we uh, build up our own economy as well to support micromobility? I think that will be an interesting Yeah, thing. because yeah. micromobility-wise, you know, we're talking about, you know, in a city of 10 million people, 7 million people, you know, we cannot just rely on just these uh, operators, foreign operators to come in to say that, hey, you know what, we, have, we can offer you 10,000 scooters, 20,000 scooters or devices to operate. It's just not enough, okay? Uh, so we do need to have the local, the local community to be involved. Uh, that, that goes to the, our other exciting in urbanist Malaysia that is uh, we are working on a unified platform. And we are, what we're trying to do is we are democratizing the, the shared mobility services. So um, this platform will allow the local communities, people yeah. who have, you know, uh, the local bike shops who decided that, hey, you know, I want to do more than selling bicycles or selling scooters. I want to rent them out. They can actually uh, hop onto this platform, you know, and be one of our partners and they start, and, and they can they can start renting out their scooters for their communities to use. That is definitely stimulating the economy for, for the local communities, especially in such time when, you know, it's pretty tough and people are talking about this disruption of this COVID-19, people losing their jobs, you know, yeah. the business are not doing well. It's time for them to think about, you know, what can what else can we do? And micromobility might just be it. Johan's right. 
we really need to do this together the cyclists companies cities and drivers and it's great to see the process of collaboration with groups such as MMB and so many others working together to make sustainable mobility a reality yeah exactly we really need everyone to be involved to make this work which is why in part 2 of this podcast we'll be talking more about creating that process of collaboration and how to involve more people both cyclists and non-cyclists to be part of the crucial decisions being made to make our cities more sustainable stay tuned everyone uh, and don't forget to catch part 2 of this podcast coming soon <laughs>